this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebound Safety. Today we're talking to the legendary Greg Smith, the author of Paper Safe, which is becoming kind of like a must-read uh, for every safety professional. Let's jump into the intro. I'll tell you some more about it. Let's go. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplit. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety does exactly what it says on the team we had to change the perception we do that right here youtube and podcast so if you're new hit subscribe bell bloody blah all of that stuff rebranding safety is brought to you by us risk fluent the consultancy that's always been sitting behind rebranding safety but has now since of 2022 gone full time we offer a technical side of health safety fire safety that traditional technical um, management of health and safety we offer all of that stuff as a kind of normal consultant essentially but we also offer our transformational services as well around culture change human error awareness behavioral kind of safety stuff and and all of that stuff trying to bring those two worlds together um so if you need any kind of support be it technical or transformational then please let us know um but you can find out some more at riskfluentlimited.com you'll start seeing the rebranding safety stuff come over onto riskfluent as well as uh, the riskfluent brand is now fully there and we can start bringing all of that stuff under one house um, one brand so keep your eye out for that stuff as well but ultimately i look forward to hearing from you let's have a quick chat about today's episode then so the legendary greg smith has uh, has come on the podcast been a while trying to get greg on this podcast actually not for anyone's fault not the fact they didn't want to come on it was just getting times and dates um when each each of us are on different sides of the entire planet um is a challenge but ultimately i hope you've read that amazing i'm pretty much kind of talisman of a book within safety called paper safe if you haven't you will definitely want to read it after today's episode and if you haven't where have you been such a good book and something that i think every safety professional needs to uh, talk about we kind of touch on paper safe a bit um but we really just have a kind of a real broad chat but then also quite quite narrow in scope in around like the legal side of things reasonably practicable understanding case studies the paper um the 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 what's he call it the uh, what's he call it the safety paradox um that he said in the books we touch on that a few times um we touch on the conversation that he had with david provan over on the safety of work podcast you haven't listened to that that's really good as well and it's a different type of conversation for what we're talking about um so we'll link that in the description below and you can have a listen to that but otherwise let's jump into our conversation with greg smith i hope you enjoy it right greg welcome to the podcast buddy thank you for coming on not at all, James. Thanks. It's taken a while to get all of our um, all of our ducks in a row, but here we are. That's one of the hardest bloody things, if I'm honest, is getting everyone's diaries aligned. And then when you when you start involving bloody time differences and everything, else, it's just it's painful. It's painful. Wow. Um, but yeah, everyone's so busy, like everywhere. The entire world seems to have just woken up, woken up after Grenfell and uh, after Grenfell. I'm not with it today. After COVID and um, yeah. 
and just everyone I, I don't I don't speak to anyone at the moment that goes actually I'm not very busy I'm quite quiet everyone is rammed everyone which is good yeah up to a point yeah yeah speaking in there is ridiculous it, good problems to have but but problems nonetheless ultimately hey. we don't want to be yeah. uh, quiet but but still yeah Everything comes with a trade-off. Right, Greg, in, in case anybody doesn't know who you are, do you want to uh, give yourself a little introduction and, and then we're going to have a bit of a chat around Paper Say, found some of the uh, the newer work that you're kind of working on, just a general chit-chat around all of that stuff and see where the convo takes us. Thanks, James. Um, so, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, an Australian-based lawyer, um, so apologies probably for both of those things. We'll, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see where that takes us. Um, Specialising primarily in workplace health and safety. Um, initially started um, well, more than 30 years ago now in the law, um, started in the employment area um, back when safety wasn't really an area of law or not of any significance to anybody. Um, you couldn't study it at university when I, when I was at, at university then, so it's a sort of a new thing in that sense, um, and found my way into workplace health and safety through um, through employment law. Um, but I've cycled through a few different things. So I was I was a qualified lawyer. Then I went and joined the army for a while and was a lawyer in the army. Came out back into the law. Um, went out and took up a, an operational safety role in the oil and gas industry just to try and get a bit of an operational sense of all this stuff I'm talking about in theory, what does it look like in practice, mm -hmm. um, which was an interesting experience. Back into the law, um, I lectured and taught at one of the local universities here in Western Australia for a while, which sort of really got my academic juices going. Um, went and worked for a mining services company for a little while as a general manager of health and safety, again, just to try and test and experiment with some ideas, and now back in the law. Nice. Um, practicing as a lawyer and a quasi safety consultant, I think. Quasi safety consultant. Well, I think that's kind of what I am. I'm I'm a I'm qualified safety and health auditor, but I mean primarily known for my work in health and safety law, um, and probably for a few of my books now that I've I've written a few. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> Paper Safe was probably this definitely the biggest one of it's, it's one of the bigger books i think within kind of uh more let's say impactful safety management instead of giving it a, a label um but i think paper safe is is one of the books that's in or should be in most people's bookcase with your operating safety so i think that's a massive achievement mate that's a huge i find it yeah, I find it interesting how that's landed, given that it's primarily written, well, not primarily, I tried to avoid it, but basically underpinned by Australian legislative yeah. jurisdiction, or Australian legislation. It does draw on a lot of international inquiries as well. Um, yeah, but it seems to have landed with a lot of people in a lot of different parts of the world who operate under different systems from Australia. Yeah. Um, but it, what I found interesting, I did a, a podcast with David Proven, who I think you've had previously. Yep. And we're talking about due diligence in the context of Australian jurisdiction, Australian legislation. Um, and we were sort of fascinated about this confluence of events at a, around about 2018. 
when he was doing his um, work on safety clutter. Yeah. Uh, and so he's over there doing that independently. Cindy, Sydney Decker was doing his kind of safety anarchy and criticisms of rules. Mm-hmm. And that, now those criticisms of rules had always been around. And at the same time, I was sort of doing paper safe, not referencing each other in any way, shape or form. And so it, it kind of said, well, you know, perhaps there is a something underlying all of this mm. which is at the heart of safety that's concerning people. Yeah. There is so, like, I, I kind of similarly talk to, when I, I remember being in, like, my first, second, maybe even third kind of safety job and didn't even know this stuff existed and, and genuinely thought, and like I joke about it a lot now, like genuinely thought I had the monopoly on a better way to do safety because nobody was talking about kind of, hang on a minute, the, the all these papers and stuff not making any difference, you know, treating people like shit and, you know, they're, they're always, you know, it's always their fault. Um, it's not, it's not making any difference. Um, and then when, and then just kind of started rebranding safety for that reason to just kind of talk about it a little bit more and see if anyone else was interested. And then it turns out it's quite a lot of people around the world, uh, talking about this stuff, which was awesome, but then also quite disappointing because I thought, well, I'm not gonna be a millionaire now because <laughs> I don't have the monopoly on it. But in that time, I mean, rebranding safety has been going about three over, probably over just over three years. And I think when we started was not a lot of, well, she had like the big, big thinkers and talkers and that about like the, the more progressive move into more impactful safety and risk management, but ultimately the doers, most, the majority of the practitioners, the big bodies, particularly in the UK, were not entertaining this conversation at all. But then I'd say in the last year, maybe two years, there's been like another boost in it like um, but i couldn't i couldn't put it down to anything like i couldn't put it down to one thing so it's weird that like you three kind of doing all that stuff at the same time there must have been something there that kind of inspired all of you or maybe there was like something subconscious there within the timing and then again i think something else happened about about a year maybe two ago that there has been another boost, another kick up the butt for people to start going, you know, this stuff's not being that impactful. Yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think there is certainly um, momentum behind that and trying to to make safety mean something in, in the workplace. Yeah. Um, and that's not, even, that's not even the right way to put it. I mean, safety does mean something in the workplace. Um you talk to operations people and they care about safety and they care about the people they work with. I think genuinely, and I haven't come up, even, even some of the worst cases I've been involved in, some of the most egregious breaches of safety legislation, they're not being committed by people who don't care about safety. Mm-hmm. They might not have the skills or the wherewithal to understand the risks they're creating for people or to understand what they should be doing. But that's a very different thing from saying they don't care about safety. Yeah. Um, but I think what people don't care about very much is safety management. Mm. They're not awfully fussed about the forms and the terribly written procedures yeah. um, and the incident investigations that don't go anywhere or don't change anything. Mm. Um, all of the fr- all of that sort of shop floor 
frustration, I think, is what people genuinely don't care about. Um, and I think even with all of the good will in the world, so the sort of um, the hop-type approaches and the, the learning team approaches and the humble inquiry approaches and all of the things that I think people are genuinely interested in about to humanise safety and to... Um, to make those improvements, I, I still think it really struggles to cut through at a shop floor level. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the conversations we're having as a profession, I think, is better than what we were having even like two, three years ago, but, you know, probably like five, ten years ago. It, it's better, 100%. It's nice to be talking a bit more... Uh, it's, it's nice to be having, you know, more sociological kind of psychological considerations within our conversations, human factors and all of that stuff, 100%. But ultimately, I think we still really struggle with what that looks like on the shop floor. I, I, I would totally agree. And I, that is probably the most message that we get is, and the most people that we talk to, whether it's a, uh, you know, a small, medium-sized business or a safety professional or whatever, you know, they're like, I've really loved all this stuff. I've been listening to your podcast. I've read this book. I've read that book. But like, what does it actually look like on the shop floor? And people really struggle with that, really still do struggle with that. Um, and uh, I, I think... Uh, go on, go on. No, sorry, you finished. Sorry, James. I no, I just going to say a couple of clients that we've been working for over the last couple of months have really pushed me on that exact problem in that we've gone into one client that had all of those symptoms of kind of the people are the the problem or we just need to whip them a bit more. All the symptoms of that, like there was all like zero harm stuff, like the mirrors on the check-in bit, you know, you're this person's responsible. And it was like, oh God, this, here we go. But I'm like, okay, at least I know where, where I'm starting. But then... And we, the first thing that we did, it was me and a couple of other people that were working on this. We went into like the boardroom essentially and spoke to the, the senior leader for that site and the safety professional. And we were just talking to them, asking really broad, open questions and unprompted out of nowhere, the leader, one of the, 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 I don't know, the head of the site or whatever, pretty senior role within the organization said, look, James, I 100% know that my people don't come to work to do a bad job. I just want to help them do it. And I was like, well, fuck me. You could have took that out of Decker's book, out of Eric's book, Todd's book, you know, Greg's book, any of these books. But yet translating that onto the shop floor, they were just drowning them in paperwork. Because to your point, right, they felt like that was the way to do to keep them safer because they do care and they want to keep them safer. They struggle to work out what does that look like? You know, what does this yeah. more progressive way look like? Um, and I think people still massively, massively struggle with that. Yeah, I, and I think there's a few things at play there. Um, I think, you know, the, the consulting industry, the insurance industry and the legal industry has got a bit to answer for mm. with this... Um, Emphasis on documentation. It, it, this whole idea has got to be written down or it's got to be proceduralised and if something goes wrong, you add another step to the procedure. Yeah. Um, you know, that that comes from a really uneducated, in terms of sociology and psychology and 
human factors and all of that. That comes from a really uneducated industry group that doesn't deal with that stuff very much. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think there's some blame to go there. Oh, yeah. There you go, blame. So straight away the language that we don't want creeps into the conversation. I think the other problem is that all of these um, initiatives, even with the best will in the world, are really corruptible once they get onto the shop floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just, you know, in terms of the, the I, I talk about, you know, the distinction between process and purpose and I talk about the safety paradox in a lot of what I do. Yeah. And you, you can take anything that is theoretically a good idea and you stick it into a work environment um, with people who aren't particularly interested in that kind of whatever your approach is, and it it, it turns just into a process that people have got to tick their way through. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, yeah, and, and I think that there's a bit to do there. Um, I think the health and safety industry is a bit of an industry divided against itself. Yeah. I think it always has been historically. I don't know why, but there seem to be really big egos in safety and everyone's convinced that they've got the right way to do things. Yeah. But, you know, I find it interesting when you say, you know, you go into an organisation, you think, oh, they've got zero harm stuff up all over the place and that's a, a warning sign for you. And then we have, I can't remember which body, I think it's the IOOF or one of them, but one of the peak industry safety body is is all about vision zero. Mm-hmm. And we still, we, so we're an industry that's divided against itself. Um, I, I don't, I don't, you know, you, you, we talk about, oh, it's difficult to understand what this looks like on the shop floor and what does it look like on the shop floor, James? We can't get, we can't seem to get any agreement on that. Mm. Um, you know, the, 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 the fights between the safety one and safety two camps and, you know, are leading and lagging indicators what do they look like we just the, the lack of agreement on any element on safety and how it ought to be managed as an industry i think is problematic yeah. um, even if we didn't have the perfect way to do something but we all agreed on the way to do it and everyone was doing it the same way that would probably take us a fair bit down the track yeah um and i the other thing, and you, you asked me before about my new books and things I'm writing, the other thing I'm distracted about at the moment is doing some work because we've just had some new legislation introduced in Western Australia which is modelled on the rest of the Australian jurisdiction. So at the time when we're trying to humanise safety and we're trying to um, give people more discretion in decision-making, we're trying to be more about learning and less about blame and all of those sorts of things, we seem to have this wave and i think it's certainly in australia i think it's in most commonwealth countries it's probably global but really heavy criminalization of safety breaches mm. you know industrial manslaughter and we've had a, a couple of jail terms in australia recently and i think once you, you know most of what we see now in health and safety legislation is actually completely out of step with progressive thinking about how to actually manage health and safety in the work. Yeah. Um, we've got uh, we've got hundreds of pages of new regulations, which is completely out of step with, you know, the original intent of the Robins report back in the 70s, but it's actually prescribing different types of paperwork that we have to have, mm. which is something we've been railing against, but the legislation now comes here and says, no, you have to have paperwork. Um, 
increasing individual accountability, increasing criminalisation, um, it, it's going to make it harder and harder for organisations to to give discretion to their workforce because they're scared about accidents and prosecution, harder and harder to have conversations about safety, impossible to a large degree now to learn anything about safety. So we've got um, we've got a, a new offence over here called Category 1, um, which attracts, you know, I mean, any person can go to jail for five years for a breach of a Category 1 offence. Um, in including death and serious harm. So what that means, just as a small snapshot, is organisational attitudes to incident investigations are radically, and right before my eyes, they are radically altering. So whereas the lawyers would be caught in when there was a fatality, it's like, well, Greg, do we need to get the lawyers in now if it's serious harm because this threat of imprisonment? Mm. And it, it just, it's locked down. People aren't learning. They're not sharing. It's, um, I think it's a huge problem. That, that, that must change the the emphasis behind it because you're now, that as a CEO, MD, whatever, you're in kind of naturally forced into self-preservation mode, aren't you? In that, or, or kind of self-defense mode in that I, I, I could go to jail now. Like I, I, nobody starts their company, you know what, we re, we're really good at saying, you know, no one on the shop floor comes to do a, a bad job, right? I don't think we're very good at saying no MD starts a business to kill someone or to hurt someone. Like they're, ah. they're exactly the same uh, to your earlier point is that they do care and they think they're having an impact, but ultimately it, it, it's maybe not impacting as much as they thought they would. But also, when you get things like that in the, the conversation naturally by the legislation or by insurances is driven to the point of like, you could genuinely go to jail or receive, you know, kind of negative implications. The, the, the main driver from that person to all subsequent kind of learnings, investigations, whatever you want to call it would naturally be, or even if it's subconscious would be self-preservation because I would go into self-preservation mode if I was like, shit, I could face five years in jail. And that's that's not just five years in jail, is it? Like, that's your entire life probably screwed once you come out of jail. Like, it, might, it comes with a bit of a brand. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. And, so and, and when you look at... Implications. Yeah, when you look at the penalty provisions now in most modern, so-called modern safety legislation... Um, the majority of medium-sized enterprises, for example, if they're if they're prosecuted, um, that's it. That's the end of the business. They're going to be liquidated. It's, the business won't exist anymore. Yeah. Now I, I understand it. Um, yeah, you know, I can't. I part of me has some empathy for what's driven this approach, um, and and there are families and loved ones of people who have died at work. Who are gen who have genuinely suffered, yeah. Um, and I and I think and I don't mean I'm not saying this in a pejorative sense. Mm -hmm. I mean they're suffering from ignorance of what health and safety legislation is designed to do. Safety health and safety legislation was even though it's criminal in nature, was never designed um, as a as a tool of retributive justice. It was designed to improve working conditions for people 
And um, you know, as far back again as the Robins report, prosecution is the avenue of last resort. Yeah, it's got, it's got think- goal-based legislation, isn't it? Like that's how I've always been taught. It. It's goal-based, so it's like yeah, you're you're aspiring to be as reasonable and practicable as possible, not avoiding punishment. It's that. But all, but the problem is all the messaging in the last five years has flipped completely on its head. Yeah. And nobody in the business community sees the role of the health and safety regulator anymore as a sort of um, supportive or educative role. Yeah, it's a investigative and prosecutorial role. Yeah, and and I and I, you know, the the shift that I'm seeing in the sort of short term is not a shift based on improving health and safety outcomes. It's a shift based on legal risk management. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the, the sort of, um, you know, one of the, one of the sort of leading lights of that, if you like, where I think the legislation runs head on into conflict with what we would now say is good safety practice is around the idea of enforcement of process. So we've got new positive due diligence obligations for our company offices over here. Um, and one of the underpinning um, concepts around due diligence is the enforcement of the company's requirements. Right. And in the vast majority of cases, the enforcement of the company requirements translates into disciplinary action against the workforce. Right, okay. Which is one of the things that modern safety theory is trying to steer us all away from because it destroys learning. Yeah. So all of this stuff we've been talking about for, for years is this failure to learn on a micro level because of um, blame cultures and how that underpins successful safety outcomes. That's all the theories. That's what the research tells us. That's what the academics talk about. Is now starting to replicate and manifest itself at a macro level. Mm. So if we, because it's seen as blame and retribution at a company level, the opportunities to learn are really diminishing really rapidly um it's it's fascinating you know, like you kind of touched on it a minute ago when you said like you don't mean it kind of pejoratively and you don't mean to kind of essentially say something without having the empathy for the people that have been infected affected by an incident negatively right and that you know, recently there's a lot of conversation you'd probably picked up on there's loads of conversation over here because you know, many years ago we had the Croydon tram crash and recently they've just opened proceedings and the driver, uh, it, the operator of the vehicle is is up for prosecution within those proceedings as well. And then in America, you've got the nurse who's just been yep. prosecuted. Um, and then to your point over in Australia, you've got this legislation coming as well. So there's these kind of three massive things going around the world going on that, is kind of impactful against what we've been trying to push. Um, and, and I know a couple of people that are working in the rail industry that are going through it and an introduction of like a just culture model. Like we're trying to show that our aim is to learn and not blame and all of this stuff. Right. And then bang, we're going to prosecute the, 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 the tram driver. It's like, that's a really difficult thing for them to deal with. Um, but Ultimately, like my kind of difficulty with this is that it, it kind of like, you know, when you get like a lot of people saying, oh, we're a no blame organization now, like to me, that's just like 
the new view version of like zero harm. Like it's not achievable to achieve, to get no blame because the legislation does apply a level of accountability to it because ultimately that always needs to be there to your point in that sometimes what you've done is so egregious or what you haven't done is so egregious that there does need to be a little bit of justice in that you do need to be ultimately punished. That's not the aim. It's the last to your earlier point. It's the final step. We want to really yeah. try and go for that process. But I, I think to, you know, I'm, I'm the, and the reason I kind of brought up the, the cramming, the tram example is because the, the family of the, the people that are passed or been injured in that event are on the news. And they're saying, finally, we feel like we're getting some, Yep. some accountability and justice yep. like, and there's an emotional need there for yep. so it needs to exist doesn't it like blame yep. ultimately needs to exist but yep. probably not within the company it needs to sit within the legal system or or, or not i don't know what, what's your thoughts on that well the problem is uh, and um to, to your point i mean the the way i've heard it expressed over here is people saying you know we need to know that the 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 life of our loved ones had some meaning yeah, yeah, that's, no, that's whatever it is. Exactly what they've said. I'm, I, and I'm not, I probably sound cold. I'm not trying to be cold. Um, I haven't lost anyone that I love in a workplace accident. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, if I did lose somebody in a workplace accident, I would probably feel the same. I would probably feel extraordinarily distressed and angry and want justice. <clears throat> Legitimate feelings, valid point of view. Um, does not make me a good architect for health and safety legislation mm. for all of those reasons, mm. okay? Um, but to your point, James, in, in terms of a trade-off, <clears throat> um, you can't, I don't think, you can isolate it. You can't say, yes, there needs to be a blame, blame that sits at a corporate level because you can't, because as soon as you say at a corporate level, you are the entity that society is going to hold accountable for workplace accidents. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Well, then the advice they're going to get straight away is to minimise your risk, here is the enforcement action that you need to drive for your organisation to make sure you've got workers who have been compliant and yeah. following your procedures. You can't isolate it. You can't. Everything in safety is a trade-off. Yeah. So if you want um, a system of retribution and prosecution, you need to recognise that there will be a trade-off for what that means for health and safety in our workplaces. Um, I love that. And, I, you know, I, I just think, I, I think we've gotten, <clears throat> I think we've gotten the balance wrong. And it's interesting because... One of the biggest misconceptions I find when dealing with the health and safety industry is that the, the idea that a health and safety prosecution is some sort of an inquiry to understand what went wrong. Mm. And it is not. Mm. The prosecution comes with a set of charges and a set of particulars to prove that charge, and that's all we are arguing about. So I did a case over here. It was only the second time a person in Australia had gone to, um, had been sentenced to a term of imprisonment for breach of health and safety legislation. Mm. So they ended up getting a two-year, two-month jail term, um, um, eight months of which was served as a term of imprisonment, 18 months was suspended. 
And so there was, it was a guilty, the, the, the fellow pleaded guilty and the company pleaded guilty. Um, and the, the prosecute, well, there was an agreed statement of facts and we argued over the particulars. And there's a line in the judgment from the magistrate where she said, um, neither the prosecution nor the defence could explain why the work was performed the way it was on the day. So there was no inquiry into why the work was performed the way it was. So all this stuff we talk about, leadership and culture and behaviour and shaping factors and all of that, no relevance at all mm. in the context of, of a prosecution. So it's not, it is not an opportunity to learn. So we, we, this is legislation that is designed retributively, um, it's prosecutions, it's not... It, it is not set up to create opportunities to learn and to improve safety. So that's interesting when you like <clears throat> the the main driver behind the education of safety professionals in the UK is legislation. I would say, you know, I, and I think there's a lot of people out there that would disagree with me on that. But I, I think their disagreement would be wrong. In the, everything that we do is like, we have to do that because the manual handling regs say we have to do it. Or the health and safety at work regs say that we act, says we have to do it, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And, and, I, and I think whilst they all say we come to work to make everyone, make sure everyone goes home the way, like everyone says that platitude. But ultimately, like, I do question sometimes, like, what if we didn't have any legislation? If we just or lost it, yeah. what, what would it look would you like? Do? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, how would you do it? Because there are companies out there that don't even know that legislation exists, that don't understand it, they don't, they just crack on and they look yep. at something like, I mean, this, this actually probably falls quite nicely onto some of the work you're working on at the minute around like. The, that kind of phrase reasonably practicable right that that is perception based like and and surely you can only define what's reasonable and practicable with hindsight can you ever define it in, I, I would struggle to go to any safety professional including myself and say define reasonably practicable i don't think they really properly could like what does that actually look like it's just different to all, all all the time but yeah, that's the main piece of legislation that's driving everything we do in the UK, at least. And and I think Australia's got pretty much. Australia, the yeah. same. I think Canada might be similar. I stand to be corrected. New Zealand certainly is. Uh, New Zealand's adopted WHS legislation from Australia, you know, broadly speaking. I mean, I I find it, it's interesting. There's a um, a high court decision over here called Slivak and Lurgy, and Justice Mary Gordon says in that case. Um, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but she says something to the effect that um, it's surprising how many times cases come before the High Court dealing with the term reasonably practicable. Um, it's surprising because it's a um, an ordinary term, um, you know, the, the meaning's plain on its own words mm. sort of thing. So from a legal perspective, that's where we, we sit. I think the difficulty with reasonably practicable in the way that it's interpreted by the health and safety industry, it's like, um, have we got the right control? Mm. And, you know, have we got enough barriers? Have we got enough training? Whatever it might be. Yeah. But in a very practical um, perspective, 
when you're talking about reasonably practicable, you're talking about two things. One is, do we have proper systems to manage the hazards in our business? And that will generally be measured, as you say, it'll be measured against codes of practice and standards and um, legislation. So, you know, most jurisdictions that have a Robin style legislation, if there's a, um, you take working at heights, right? There'll be a code of practice for working at heights and it will describe what you have to do and there'll be probably be regulations that say at certain heights, certain other things kick in, okay? Mm -hmm. And the measure is, do you have a system that aligns with those requirements? Yeah. And the second part of it, and this is the bit that we always, this is the bit that the industry misses, is have we got adequate supervision to know if those systems are implemented and effective? And that's the bit, I think, where we miss out. Um, part of the reason why I think we miss out is because of this obsession to measure safety. So, um, so for example, um, injury rate data. Yeah. Right. And the, the, fact, the fact that we are still having a conversation about the relevance of injury rate data in 2022 shows says to me how far health and safety has got to go to yeah. really have credibility in some areas. Yeah. Um, health and safety data, injury rate data, is not evidence that our systems are in place and effective. Mm. And that's, that's the conversation we're not having. What is it that we need to do to understand um, if those systems are in place and if they work? Mm. It's interesting. I remember, I don't want to repeat the conversation and people can go to your, your conversation with David Provan on, on, on the safety work. Cause you spoke quite, I think it was David's podcast. You spoke quite heavily about supervision, but there was, it was, I, I, what I thought was really insightful from that conversation, Greg, is it's kind of what you define as supervision. Like, cause I think many of us in the UK, when we hear supervision, we automatically think somebody watching somebody. But yeah. but you you kind of described if I interpreted and listened to you correctly, you described supervision as like the whole kind of system, um, like it, that acts as supervision. Um, I don't know whether you could kind of reiterate that. I suppose. I, I guess what I was trying to do because the quote, the quote that I was giving came from a court case and it talked about adequate supervision to make sure the systems are in place and effective. Mm. Okay, and. Um, the point of that really was um, to recognise that when the court uses the term supervision in that context, they're not talking about what supervisors do. Mm. They're talking, as, as you point out, whole of organisation oversight and assurance to know that the systems work. Now, yeah. what supervisors do is a really important part of that process, but that's not necessarily what the courts talk about when they say that. Yeah, um, and it's it's interesting. I mean, you 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 mentioned it before, James, when you said that um, a lot of what health and safety people do, particularly, and I think you're right, particularly entry level safety people, they do get a lot of schooling in the regulations, and then they come in and they do see themselves as enforcers of the regulations. Yeah, and I think you actually have to educate yourself out of your safety education to become good at safety as bizarre as that sounds totally, totally. Um, but but the problem the problem with it and i've i've seen this before um 
safety people talking about safety legislation can talk to the technical regulatory requirements, but what they don't appreciate is all of the case law that unpicks and unravels the sorts of phrases that we talk about in safety. So reasonably practicable, foreseeable, control, um, influence, those sorts of, yeah. of matters. It, yeah. I would, I would attest to that. I've, it took me a long time to, uh, to actually do my diploma um, over here, which is like degree level education, um, because mainly because I spat my dummy out and I'm too stubborn um, and I didn't want to do it. Um, but I I ended up doing a, the newer um, entry to the market, so to speak, over here in the NCRQ um, diploma. And, and pretty much a large, so you get like three books within that. Like book one is essentially like what I did in like the Nebos general, like your entry level stuff, which we kind of went through and rehashed, which was all right. Um, but it was all case study based, the whole thing. And then you moved into book two, which was all about insurance and legal and stuff like that. And that was all heavy legal case studies. And I remember opening the first page and kind of flicking through it and being like, shit, this is going to be heavy. Like this is going to be, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like that sounds really weird, but I actually really enjoyed it. And I would say that second book alone probably gave me more insight into UK legislation than I think I've ever had in going through all of those different case studies and, and, reading a case you making a decision in your head and, and i think how they did how they designed the book was really good as well but essentially like they force you to make a decision as to what like act like you're the judge essentially and then they tell you what the judge said which was a really interesting way of learning but ultimately what was really nice was to read the case and think oh i think it probably they should have gone to jail or they should have been fined X amount or, or, or definitely not innocent. And then reading that, like the judge was like, actually, no, they were totally like, this was just a normal hazard and the company could have done what they believe to be reasonable and practicable was really insightful. And there's one particular case that they talk about that I'll probably never forget um, where they got like an old quarry pit or something that had become a swim like a public swimming pool basically or a paddling pool or whatever and long story short a, a young a young boy i think like dived in head first into this pool um knowing that it was kind of like a paddling pool and not a swimming pool um kind of dived in had a horrific injury um and they basically went through and i remember the judge basically saying and I'm, I would say I'm not even paraphrasing. I'm literally probably just vaguely remembering this. Um, but ultimately it was like, you know, legislation shouldn't, shouldn't exist to kind of restrict enjoyment of like our natural environment. And the company shouldn't be forced to remove the hazards of our natural environment. It is what it is. And it was just a paddling pool. Like they shouldn't have signs up saying this is just a paddle. Like it's shallow. You can walk through the whole thing. It was something like that. And I remember reading that and thinking, wow, that's amazing. Uh, Whereas I think if I was a safety professional five years ago, 10 years ago for that company, I would read the legislation and go, right, I need to tell them that it's shallow. And the judge was like, no, they should know that it's shallow by going in. Yeah. 
yeah. and I was like, wow. So I think you've hit the nail on the head there, like more exposure and critical thinking around case studies would be really, really beneficial to the safety profession. I, I think it would it would help. I mean, there's, there's an interesting sort of chain of, of case law in Australia, which I think would probably align pretty close with Canada and the UK, that it sort of says you don't need to warn people or take precautions against obvious hazards which people would account would encounter in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. Okay, so um, that, that fell out of a case where a person was injured walking up the stairs and the, the court basically said, well, you know, you don't have to warn people about the dangers of walking up and down stairs. The fact that it's in a workplace doesn't matter. I mean, that's a, that's a hazard they would associate in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. And there's another case called Prospect Electricity, which which talks about um, this notion of the infinite regression of supervisors, having well-trained supervisors supervising well-trained supervisors who in turn are supervised by well-trained supervisors. <laughs> and said, not necessary. And they made an interesting comment where they said, um, you know, um, a, well-tra- a, a well-trained tradesperson doesn't need to be tra- taught or told to cross the road safely. Mm. And I thought, wow, you know, my, my initial experience, that's one of the first things that stood out um, when I first got involved in the oil and gas industry was that actually that was a rule in the workplace that when you left the office and went out for lunch, it was a rule that you crossed the street at lights and you didn't cross against the lights. And if you did and you got caught, your employment would be terminated. And you have all these signs in the workplace about, you know, tap water coming out of a hot water tap is hot and knives are sharp and everything. And it's like, how do you how do you get credibility as an industry to have people pay attention when you're talking about really important things if their their day-to-day lives is just full of this flotsam and jetsam of nonsense and trivia. Yeah. Yeah. I I struggled with it. I, I couldn't stay in in the in that kind of work environment. I th- I think this is just I think this is why I think your book resonates with so many people, Greg. I think that yeah. what you've just hit there is a, is a nail on the head. I think a lot of people that are safety professionals like myself and, you know, numerous people that were in the PM book club when uh, we, we've just finished reading your book uh, in the new, just early in the new year. Um, it resonates with so many of us in that I remember in an old job of mine, getting a phone call from my manager and I still think she gave it to me because she knew that I was probably the one of few in the team that would kick up stink about having to do this. Um, and whether she wanted that to happen or not, I don't know, but I had a phone call and it was like, Jane said, can you just do a job for the head office? And I was like, head office, not my area. Why, why am I doing head office? Can, I just wonder if you could just do a head office job. I'm like, all right, fine. Um, don't want you to kind of just do a policy or something around um, keeping your shoes on in the office. And I was like, oh, yeah. I was, I'm sorry, what? And they're like, yeah, can you just do that? Why? Well, because there's, a, there's been a complaint that a lady has, has, has taken her shoes off. Um, and I was like, right, what's that got to do with me? Like, what's that yeah. got to do with our department? Like, as we're, we're busy here trying to, trying to fix a lot of these buildings that are going to burn down if they catch on fire and people will go for a horrific death. What do you want me to deal with somebody standing standing on what a staple? Um, that's just normal life. Like people take their shoes off at home. Well, yeah, but this is an office. There's loads of different people in there. I'm like, this is not our job. I 
talked to HR. It's a uniform. Yeah. Issue, if anything. Was, yeah, exactly right. It was somebody taking offence. But I, mean, I think, I think the point of, and I hope the point came through. The point of paper safe was this was not some bloke who doesn't like paperwork coming up with a theory about paperwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything in every there's not there's not a lot of original thought in there. Yeah. This is just these are just all here's here's everything from the court cases, yeah. which have so every everything that you as a safety person or you as a worker find infuriating or frustrating or disingenuous or whatever it is about the paperwork and the process that you have to deal with in safety. Guess what? When it lands in front of the courts, they kind of have the same view. Yeah, it's there's not there's not this huge disconnect between them. Yeah, and the the thing I like pointing out to people most is not here's some bullet points on a slide. Here is the page from the judgment where the judge uses the term tick and flick. Mm. All right, they will read your documents, they will listen to the witnesses, and they know for the same reason that we all know. Yeah. Do you think like judges are just fed up of reading this this just just the same shit and just going, why have people not got this? Like uh, I am I imagine they're no, just frustrated no, they're not. No, 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 no. They no, I I don't think they turn their mind to it one way or the other. And as I say, um they uh, your, your average judge, first of all, wouldn't deal with that many prosecutions, so they wouldn't be sitting, they wouldn't have a clue. Right. They wouldn't know what the fatality rates are. They wouldn't know what industry in, injury rates are. Um, they they wouldn't, probably wouldn't have a clue that organisations struggle with this stuff. It's not what they do. Right. Um, yeah. Just make a decision. In front and, of it's just, and it's just one of the things that crosses, crosses their desk on a daily basis. So they've got a, our safety stuff's prosecuted, um, most of it in the magistrates' court. So mm. they've got some guy from the local lockup who was fighting in the pub the night before, or they've got some drunk driver or some person who's had their license disqualified. And safety is just in that in that sausage factory of um, yeah. the lower tiers yeah. of the judicial system. Yeah. Nothing special about it. No. Most of it gets dealt with by way of a guilty plea. Yeah. You just churn it through, no learnings, no sharing of lessons. Um, our advocates for this style of legislation like to talk about the deterrent effect, not seeing it personally. No. So. No. Do you, um, I think anyone knows I was reading um, Paper Save and then when again when I was listening to you talk to um, David Provan, David and I think Drew, they both did it together. I can't remember. Um, but they did a paper on safety work and like they broke kind of safety work and the work of safety into like different categories. So there's like the work that we do to demonstrate safety. Yep. The work, yeah. Yep. So you understand, and I've spoken about it numerous times on a podcast. So I think everybody knows what I'm what I'm talking about. To me, when I read that, I thought. That's probably one of the most important things I've read in a long time. Like it really resonated with me. And I thought, you know, if we can get more safety professionals to think like this in the, and, and, I, and the reason why I think that it was beneficial is because 
I think people can read like safety anarchists and they can get really into all this new safety, safety differently, whatever. To your point, maybe even read paper safe, misinterpret it and feel like the paperwork's delivering nothing. Just get it, get rid of all of it. And then, yeah. you know, and misinterpret this whole m- movement, so to speak, for lack of a better phrase, and not understand that, that not understand what I think they demonstrate really well in that paper. And I do think you do, you cover it really well in your book as well, in that the paper has a purpose. And sometimes that purpose is not managing impactfully the safety of the job. And sometimes you've just got to have this piece of paper. Like I think in the UK, things like Chaz, right? It's Chaz is communicated, not just Chaz, there are other brands, Chaz, Smaz, whatever. Some are better than yeah. others. But ultimately, that they, they have no connection to impactful safety on the shop floor. They don't make the workplace safer, in my opinion, at all. They are your classic tick and flick, right? However, you're mm. required to have them to get on site. Yep. So it and, and and they may be if somebody doesn't have Chaz, it might be a slight indication that the person doesn't know anything, and there might be a little bit of a signal there to say there's something we need to you know have a conversation about because you're not even doing this stuff, and that's a bit t- tick and flip. So for me, it's kind of like sometimes we just need to understand that there are stuff that we do that is really impactful on on safety, and that's obviously our priority, but also there's going to be some stuff that we do that's not impactful, but we still need to do it for the wider context of running a business. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. There's so much much in that. I mean, you can unpack that all night. So there's just, but there's a couple of things. Um, First of all, I think, um, and this is when I talk about the safety paradox, I guess, is that most of the processes that we develop for safety have at least some theoretical basis which on an uneducated view might make a positive contribution towards safety. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, some sort of pre-task risk assessment, for example. So the theoretical basis for it is there. Now, I'll qualify this. I'm not a sociologist and there's I'm not a form designer. So there are probably some documents and processes that are just inherently bad. Yeah. Like the, the, the mere fact that we've designed them and they look like this way probably creates a problem in and of itself. I'll leave that to the sociologists and the psychologists and the design engineers, okay? I don't understand that. But let's assume most of what we do has some sort of theoretical basis that sounds right to us. Oh, yes, if somebody has a checklist and they go through the checklist before they start work, that should probably make a positive contribution to safety, All right? My, and I'm not saying this is the only experience of it, but my experience of it, and this is what I wrote about, is that we get a disconnect between purpose and process. Yeah. So if the purpose of the checklist is to make sure that the, the, the site I'm just about to do some work on is properly set up and safe, that's fine if the form is achieving that outcome. Yeah. But what, what often happens with so many of our processes is that the purpose becomes the completion of the process itself, not the outcome the process was designed to achieve. Yes. So the purpose of me filling out a form is to show that I've got a completed form, Yeah. which may or may not contribute to safety depending on how well I've done it. Yeah. 
Then we bump into the assurance piece that I talked, you know, we talked about supervision and assurance before. Yep. So if this process that you've defined in your organisation and you've said it's important and you, James, as a worker, you must do this every time before you start work, how much time, effort and energy is your organisation prepared to put in to understand if that's being done properly and is working? Because if all you're doing is say do it and we're never going to check the quality or the efficacy of it, why have it? Yeah. Because potentially all you are doing is building a database of non-compliance. Mm-hmm. All these forms are being completed and collected and collated and counted and stuck into a database somewhere. <clears throat> no one's looking at them. Mm. They all look like crap. They all look like to conflict documents. Then you've got two dead bodies on the ground and the regulator says, oh, what's in this database over here? Yeah. Oh, look, this has been identified 134 times in the last two years. What have you done about it? Oh, shit, didn't even know it was there. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I, that's, I, that's the frustration I get. Yeah, and I really, I took that from the book as well, like that, what's the purpose? Like, I think if we combine, for me, this is how I've kind of used it, I've combined that purpose and process conversation with the kind of safety of work and worker safety. Like, yes. I think those just so work so well together in, in my, as a practitioner, in my kind of opinion. And what's our purpose with this? this? This job, what are we trying to achieve? Uh, if I'm brutally honest, this is just about showing something to our insurers okay cool that's our process that's what we're trying to do so let's make sure we achieve that and let's do that okay what's our purpose per purpose today our purpose today is to make this job safer okay that's what we're trying to achieve then not satisfy insurers we might satisfy insurers by doing this anyway but ultimately like i think back to i use a forklift truck example so many times in that if I was trying to do my forklift truck checklist, pre-checklist thing that I had this massive issue with getting these drivers to do it years and years and years ago, the first thing I'd do now is just get rid of the checklist. I'd just get rid of the checklist because yeah. the purpose is doing the check and they know what to check. They all knew what to check, but we've took what was a 30-second yeah. to a minute job to yep. now be in a five to 10 minute job because they've got to fill the form out, take the form out, take it over to the box, put it in a box, like just get rid of the form. But that wouldn't maybe be, be very good to demonstrative safety. So we'll find another way to demonstrate it because our purpose right now is to check the forklift truck. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because this idea of, um, and again, insurance and lawyers and consultants probably to blame here, but this idea of, evidencing that we do these things is probably what drives it. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've lost count of how many times I've suggested instead of having a, a, um, a checklist approach to pre-start inspections where you're creating these masses of paperwork, why not just have a by exception reporting? Yeah. If there's a problem, report it. Yeah. I mean, as, a, as an exercise in theory, it achieves exactly the same outcome. Yeah. Um, from a safety perspective, what it doesn't achieve is a piece of paper that says it's been done. Now, the piece of paper doesn't say the job's been done. What the piece of paper says is the piece of paper's been completed. Yeah. Everything yeah. else is an assumption. Yeah. But the other problem with this idea of evidencing safety, and again, I'm probably going to sound like a complete wanker when I say this, and I don't mean to, <laughs> but the people who we are entrusting 
with evidencing our safety process, never went to school to complete paperwork and forms. Mm -hmm. They love driving trucks and swinging spanners and whatever it is, and they're really good at it. And they do, you know, they do stuff I can't do. Yeah, um, I can evidence safety for you really well. Yeah, I can I can write it down and I can be clear and precise and articulate and make sure that what's written on the piece of paper will stand up in court. Yeah. Your workforce can't. Yeah. Right? They're not trained to. They don't understand it. For them, they just need to get the bit of paper done so they can get on with the job. And even, and I again, I'm not being critical, even if they do it with the best will in the world to try and understand the risks and properly articulate and document that, 95% of the time what they write is rubbish. Yeah. Because that's not that's not their job. That's not what they're good at. We don't train them to do it, right? We don't give them any help how to do it. And yeah, you know, how many inductions have you been in where the the so called instructor stands up the front of the room and says, right, you blokes have all done a pre start inspection before. I don't need to tell you about that, do I? Yeah, no, good. Right, next topic. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And I, I mean that. I think I think a lot of people will listen to that, Greg, and be nodding their heads, whether they're driving right now or whatever. They'll be like, "Yeah, you know, same as I am." I'm like, "Yes, you're so right." But how do yeah? But how do they do that? Like, how do they change that? Because it's it's like trying to change something that's like kind of tattooed on our body. Do you know what I mean? Like that literally defines so many people's jobs. Is like. That's just how we manage risk. We 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 create yep. a piece of paperwork, we a lovely template, and we we do think about the the shop floor employee and, and how to make it easier for them. But they need to demonstrate it, and I think people really struggle with that. And this comes back to what we started our conversation with, doesn't it? Is is what does this look like in reality? And that's yeah. really hard. And it, 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 is it that the evidence here needs to be done more? by that safety department and then so that demonstrated so, so does does the safety department become like imagine you've got a massive company right huge resource loads of money big safety team is that safety team split into like you're just auditors and assurance team and your job is to literally convert as you've just said go down to the shop floor look what they're doing look at the presence of safety as eric would call it and convert that into something that we can demonstrate out without hindering yep. the spanner swingers on the shop floor yep if i was a company officer in australia at the moment in a high-risk industry facing the threats of um, a prosecution for industrial manslaughter i would repurpose my safety team to be responsible for that yeah really yeah i think that's what i would be doing um, but again, there's no, there's no one size fits all no. answer for this because different workforces, different levels of sophistication, different resources, different staffing, all of that stuff um, is 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 a real issue. It's a real limitation. It's a real problem um, for a lot of organisations. But I think, I think the start point is. Um, First of all, understanding what processes do you actually have in your organisation. Now, I know that sounds a bit silly, but particularly in larger organisations, this stuff has been getting layered and layered and layered over so many years, um, a lot of people wouldn't even 
understand the number of processes they have in their organisation or the checklists or forms or whatever it might be. So the start point is probably to understand, well, what do we have? Um, and then there's a conversation that says, and um, I'm wearing a lawyer's hat now, but, you know, okay, what's the bare minimum we need? Do we need this form? No. Do we need that form? Yes. Regulation 427 says we need that. All right. Well, that stays for starters. All right. So here's all the stuff that we must have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then the next layer is, okay, over and above that, what do we really think we need that's going to deliver a safety outcome? Yeah. Um, and I think if, if you get your conversation to that point with a, a willingness to say, we are now going to expend the time and effort to understand that these processes are done properly. That's, in my view, probably more value than producing lots and lots of processes that aren't done properly. Mm. I so. think I think that that conversation of like, what do we legally need with maybe like UK legislation would actually be a really difficult conversation in the, you know, if we were to, I was just talking about Kosh the other day, right? Um, and it, you know, this company had like, and, and this is not, this is not uncommon. I think everyone's had that, like Kosh assessments yep. for household chemicals, um, Kosh assessments for boot polish, Kosh assessments for fairy washing up liquid. And it's like, but that's just normal household chemicals. Because the le- the the, the reg- regulation says you must have a cost assessment for hazardous chemicals, and in theory there is a hazardous chemical. So it's like just having that. To what do we need? Is actually a really difficult conversation. Like it says, you must have a you must have assessed the risk of essentially anything that's going to hurt someone in your workplace. If you've got more than five employees, write it down. I think it's a little bit better with with the more general risk assessment to the management of of health and safety at work makes it clear like record the significant findings but then things like cash I, I I might be wrong and I'm happy to be corrected on that I don't think it's that specific in the cash reg so you do end up going in and seeing just a cash assessment for everything and I, I know we're going uber specific here but it's just one example and yes. You're like, well, fuck me, I haven't got a cost assessment for washing up liquid downstairs. And I've got an 18-month-old baby running around the house drinking everything. So it is it's a really conversation, really difficult process to go through. Like, what do we actually legally need? Is yeah. is that point where would it be, do you think, beneficial to for a company at that point to like I, I suppose uh, let's um I'll frame this conversation this question another way. Are safety professionals truly competent to interpret the legislation that well? Uh, I think by and large when we're talking about regulations, yes, because they deal with um, my experience of regulations, they deal with technical topics which, you know, you can get guidance on and you can get advice on and deal with the technical topics. I think in that sense they are. Yeah. the, the question is who sets the risk appetite for the organisation? Mm. Okay, so if you've, you know, if, if you've got to have an assessment for washing up liquid, what are the consequences of not having that assessment? Yeah. All right. Now, okay, is somebody going to go and start mixing washing up liquid with their shots of tequila at work and kill themselves? 
God knows. And if they did, well, seriously, I think you could run a reasonable defence against that. Yeah. The question becomes how much time, effort and energy are your safety resources expending on the management of that issue as opposed to being out in your workplace making sure people are not losing arms or falling off balconies? Yeah, yeah. And, again, I think, I don't know, I mean, there's a few things... I'm, I'm, I am probably going to get vilified here, so but let's see where we go. One of the things that strikes me about my observations of safety and health over the last 30 years is that there does seem to be an inherent laziness in the preparedness to do the work to manage health and safety. I mean, I'll give an example. You know, the fact that people would go and and do ongoing, you know, I think you can mount an argument and say you don't need to go and do risk assessments of household washing up liquid yep. in your workplace. Yep. But I think for lots of health and safety people, it's they would prefer to be doing that than having a difficult conversation with a work group in the workplace. I see where you're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think the reason why we have so much emphasis on personal injury rates in the health and safety industry is it's easy to do. Or, or well, so I agree with that. A, like if they feel like they're having an impact though, don't you? Like you can you you feel like you're doing something, maybe. I don't know. Or, or both, probably both. To be fair, yeah, I I agree. I, I think whether it's whether it's a point that the safety profession and businesses are just drowning in stuff like that, and they want to do something else. Maybe, maybe that's some of them. Maybe some of them are nice and comfortable in in the feeling of doing a cost assessment for boat polish, you know, or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think there are a lot of safety people who are really very comfortable and quite happy despite the protestations that you hear, I don't get to spend enough time in the field. I think a lot of them are quite happy sitting in an office behind a computer amending documents yeah. or updating updating databases and doing reports. Now, I'm probably being unkind to an enormous number of people in the industry. But, but... When, when you think of all of the stuff that you're being critical of tonight, the sort of stuff that you've read and you, you're repeating back to us and talking about that you're critical of, um, somewhere it's the health and safety industry that has to take responsibility for that. Yes. And it, surely we are the ones who are responsible to to stand up in front of the boardrooms or to stand up in front of CEOs or wherever we have our voice in the organisation and say, this is what you ought to be doing. Mate. And we should have, a, we should have an industry um, united behind us to say, yes, that is what you should be doing instead of so many conflicting messages about what safety looks like. I absolutely love what you've just said. I, I not so long ago, I think last year, mid to late last year, put a post on LinkedIn saying exactly the same thing in that 
if if we re I think the HSE had just put out their fatality stats, right? And I was like, if we really and truly care about getting this number down, which has been flat for a decade now, you know, on average in the UK, it's still 140 something deaths nearly every year for that for a decade. We ourselves have to take some accountability and turn around and what we are doing as a profession is not working. It hasn't changed. Nothing is improving. And I got like vilified, like literally thought I was going to have people with pitchforks outside my house. Like I was having messages and everything. And all of them consistently said the same thing. We're just here to advise, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but it's our advice that's not making a difference. So we have to take accountability. And I find it so ironic that a profession that is bread and butter is pushing accountability onto the onto the company and saying, you must be accountable, Mr. or Mrs. CEO of this company for safety. You must be responsible, refuses to take any accountability for just having no impact anymore, in my opinion. And I think I think we will be getting witch hunted after this, Greg, if I'm honest. Oh, I've lost your audio. I've lost your audio. You've gone quiet. You're not muted. Oh, no. Oh, your blue light's gone off. So maybe your battery's run out. Can you hear me now? Yep, I got you. You've got your call centre headset on. Yeah, sorry about that. I ran a two-hour workshop this morning, so I've obviously flattened oh, out. They're good, they're good bits yeah. of kit, though, those road wireless goes. They're nice. They're very good. Yeah, I just, I just did a video right. series, and they're really good. Work. I've never right. set it up for the computer call, though. That's that's quite clever. Yeah, I like it. I'm now I'm going to have to charge that up. That's all right. Um, now, what was the last thing I said? Oh, yeah, we're going to get vilified. I was, I was saying they'll have to join the line um, and come around the corner. But you, put, put it, think about it this way, though. Think about it this way. So if you're the chief executive officer of an organisation, okay, um, you've got responsibility for a whole range of things. Um, yeah, how does it? How does it? How does a chief executive officer get informed about the financial performance of the company? By the finance department. Yeah, they've got a chief financial officer. They've got an accountant. They get informed by HR. I mean, ultimately, CA makes decisions. But you know, and I was having this conversation with a, a safety professional the other day, and I said. If, if, if you are going to hold a chief executive officer liable for not exercising due diligence in relation to the health and safety obligations of the organisation, surely the health and safety inspectors are going to be having a serious conversation with the senior health and safety advisors to say, what did you tell the CEO? Mm. What information did you give them? And I, I, I do think it's an industry that has rested for too long on all care and no responsibility. Mm. Yeah. Because, you know, if, if the CEO is relying on injury statistics as evidence of due diligence um, and, the, and the health and safety advisor has never told them that that is not a measure of safety in your organisation, Where's the accountability of the health and safety person in those circumstances? Mate, I love, I love where this is going. I wish we went down this rabbit hole an hour ago. It, it, it's so... <laughs> we just edit it, edit it, and swap this around at the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's so true that like like if, do we not have an obligation to when we hear something like 
I mean, I, I use these examples all the time, but the HSC's put out report to say, we don't think the kind of back to school um, manual handling training uh, approach is effective. Uh, evidence has shown that it doesn't have any impact on improving technique. We have an obligation to report that back to our board and say, I think we might need to stop spending money on all this manual handling training and re rethink about where we're going. And, and again, not just the safety profession, also the health and safety executive, because I put that exact question to one of their enforcing officers and said, your science division has said this. What do we do with that? Because I've not seen anything else off the back. Of, and I was the head of safety for a trade association. And so it was our job to tell our members about that stuff. Yeah. And I was like, what do I tell our members? And she was like, well, if, if we turned up and you weren't doing any manual handling training, um, we would be, we, we would enforce. And I'm not, okay. My, 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 I'm not really sure where to go with that in that my, my, I'm not saying remove everything. What I'm saying is your piece of science that you have given us has said, we don't think it's, it's having an impact on delivering safety what do you want us to do with that? And she she won't give me an answer. Yeah. And the profession hasn't done anything with it. Our professional body hasn't done anything with it. There's mm. there's no evidence to say high visibility clothing is in, is increases visibility. Yet high visibility clothing is bread and butter in the safety yeah. profession. You could go on all day. And to your point, you know the statistic invalidity of of accident yep. incident data has been questioned for numerous years now yet yep. it's all we talk about and i think we have some accountability in that 100 i agree with you i agree with you is that not what our job is i would have thought so i would have thought so um and and that's not to say and look i give i give advice it's my job and not all of my advice is acted on and not all of my advice is welcome and that's fine and I'm not saying, and, and I think this is, I think safety people get a bit down in the mouth around this. I think, oh, I can't influence and whatever. And we, 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 there's this big, almost this, this whole other industry that hangs off health and safety about how to influence and we send people off and do influence. And yeah, influence is important and we, and we want all of that. But it, it's also perfectly okay if you want to hold yourself out as a professional to provide professional advice based on facts and statistics and research or whatever it is properly can here is my advice to you yeah and if they say thank you for your advice greg but we want to do something else yeah that's fine mm -hmm. um can i suggest you do it this way no we want to do it that way okay well if that's what you want to do i've given you my advice and i'm prepared to support what you're asking me to do and then we deal with it that way yeah um, but I'm I'm just not sure we are a, we're, we're and you know there will be exceptions to these rules and you're right I'll be told that I'm wrong but that's fine I'm just not sure we're particularly um, accountable mm -hmm. as a, as an industry for yeah. safety yeah it, it, it seems to be it seems to be everybody else's fault except safety yeah and I I do think there is you know that that story of um, Oh, what was it where well, the, the ladies are always passing away after childbirth, you know, years and years and years, you know, hundreds of years ago. 
and um, and they couldn't work out what it was and why they were. I can't remember the, the particular case. And uh, a doctor or a young young student doctor or something like that worked out that it was because in the in the mornings they were doing autopsies to try and work out what the problem was, and then they were delivering. Oh uh, God. They were delivering in the afternoon, so they were basically infecting the ladies and and killing them because they weren't washing their hands. And the a doctor had worked it out and said, "It's it's you're the problem. Like even though you're trying to fix the problem, you are the, the problem. problem. Your, your hygiene is not 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 up to scratch. And the concept of virus and bacteria didn't exist really back then. And um, and and I feel like that's where we are as a safety profession. It's a Yes, a lot of us are doing some amazing work. And yes, for years since like, you know, in the UK, since 1974, we have done some phenomenal work in mm. partnership with businesses and partnership with the enforcing agency. And we're not saying that that is, you know, that doesn't exist. It's a hat tip to that's what we've done. But this is where we are now. We're not having an impact. And, and I think it, at least in part, we are the problem. Um, I think it's kind of like going to an Alcoholics Anonymous group, isn't it? Like we need to accept that first. Once we accept the problem, we might actually be able to move forward with this. Um, but that's a really difficult conversation for us to have. Well, at least, at least isn't it beholden on us to ask the question, you know, could we be part of the problem? Yeah. Yeah, and and see where that, and see where that takes us. Yeah, um, or, or even if you're but, not comfortable having that conversation with yourself, come back to what you talk about in your book and what you spoke about several times today. What's the purpose of what we're doing here, and mm. are we achieving that purpose? Like critically ask yourself. Go pick up one of your risk assessments for your one of your high risk tasks, and go. What's the purpose of this? And your answer will probably be to make the job safer. Is it achieving that? And if your answer is no, could Bob never follows the rules, then <laughs> you need to have a really serious conversation with yourself. Yeah. Uh, that's an, yeah. And, and yeah, and you can ask that, you, know, you can ask that question at all levels. I mean, it's, it's amazing, for example, how many major acts of inquiries will and it, it's just tragic that it takes a major accident inquiry, but you have a major accident inquiry and um, it's interesting how much of the blame also gets laid at the feet of the regulator. Mm. Okay. And so there's, there's more than one moving part in all of this mm. and the health and safety. And, you know, and when I talk about the health and safety industry, I'm not just talking about individual practitioners. Okay. Um, so, you know, we've got, we've got a body, over here, Australian Institute of Health and Safety. Um, I'm not a member. I, I don't see much value, I'll be honest, in um, health and safety professional organisations. I'm not sure, honestly, what they offer. Um, they seem to do some good stuff. They have some good speakers. There's some very good people who are a part of it. So it's not a criticism. There's some really good individuals who are part of it. But I don't know what they stand for as an organisation, for example. And um, when... My overwhelming sense was when industrial manslaughter started to sweep through Australia, this was a professional body that was in favour of that. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence that it's going to improve safety outcomes. Mm. And I, I really just think that 
um, it's beholden on organisations like that to be the voice of the industry, yeah. present the evidence, um, and 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 form a view about it. Not just say, "Oh, the government's introduced this; we need to do something." Form a view about it and say, "Is this a good thing or not?" Give the industry something it can hang its hat on, yeah, um, and work with. Yeah, um, I, I think we've got. I think we have the exact same problem, and and I think those bodies might come back and say, "Actually, no, we do lobby government or whatever." But like when I was when I worked for a trade association, that was literally our job. Like all the time, anything the government was doing, whether it was funding or a campaign or legislation change, whatever, we would get inundated from our members being like, we need you to say this, we need you to say that. And our job was to collate all of these opinions and be the voice for that that particular trade. I don't feel like our professional bodies in safety do that at all. No. Um, and look, it, they, they may not see that as their role. I don't know. But again, I, I circle back around a bit on this point. You talk about industry divided. Um, and, you know, there's, we have a thing called the body of knowledge here in Australia that's yep. designed to sort of underpin safety. And there's a few things like that. But when it comes to some really core principles around how to effectively manage health and safety in organizations i don't see much in the way of um consistent messaging mm. or constant you know a, a, some sort of solid basis that you can say this is the appropriate thing to be doing the other problem we have within it is in like ultimately those types of organizations are are made up of people of that profession or industry. And if the issue is criticism of that profession or industry, then mm. ultimately that body's never going to say we screwed up. So like, mm. I think to the fire industry now in the UK, like every fire professional or, or safety professional that has de dealt with fire safety in those higher risk industries, like sleeping risk, housing, hospitals and stuff like that um, would have said, yeah, we, we knew something was going to happen. We don't know. We didn't. We weren't as clever to say it would be cladding and on a, on a housing building. But ultimately, we knew something was going to happen because the quality of work within our profession of risk management for fire was so inconsistent. It was all over mm. the place. And the majority mm. of them, in my opinion, were shite. And, and, and I've said that many a time. The majority of fire assessments still even now that I read are so far away from what the legislation actually requires us to do, yeah. what building regs actually requires it. And there's some context to that because building regs is messy AF and it's really yeah. screwed up. Um, and the government needs to take some accountability there on fixing that. But ultimately, I was damned lucky to have two amazing mentors that got this stuff. So, you know, I didn't just wake up enlightened. I was really lucky to kind of have the insight from them. But ultimately, I look at so many fire risk assessments now and I go, you know, we're the problem. And I don't think you'll ever see the IFE, the Institute of Fire Safety Managers, maybe not ever is probably not the right way to say it. I, I think that the messaging might be influenced by some of the people that are just profiting from those really easy yep. copy and paste virus assessments, yep. those crappy training sessions that deliver no value or, or whatever it is, you know, yep. that's one example, but ultimately these bodies are really good things. 
And I've seen, I've been in one and seen how powerful it can be, but ultimately it's made up of people that might also be profiting from the... I. We're, we're in muddy waters now. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I look, I mean, uh, look, there are, there are a lot of, there's a lot of snake oil sold in safety. Um, and, you know, a lot of medium-sized businesses are pretty easy prey to sell a safety product to. Um, and I know this all sounds down and miserable. I mean, you know, we have to acknowledge um, in some areas of safety, um, so, you know, the, the traumatic physical harm in safety, yeah, there have been enormous improvements yeah. over the last 20 years. Um, that's true. Um, there have been other areas where I think we've actually gotten worse. You know, psycho psychosocial harm in workplaces has, has gotten worse. Yeah. So there's been tremendous improvements. Some, some of the ground rules are shifting. That's, that's all true. Um, there are also some absolutely brilliant, outstanding individuals in safety. I mean, I look at, I look at the blood, sweat and tears that some people I have to deal with um, put into safety. And what they do is tremendous and it's excellent and, it, and it, it's really, really wonderful. Yeah. But anybody who stands on the outside looking in must wonder what is going on. I can't get, I can't get a consistent message. Um, the quality of the, the quality of documentation that I see, and again, granted, I'm yeah, I, the doc, quality of documentation I see is really ordinary most of the time, mm. and I'm talking about incident investigations, risk assessments the quality of drafting in policies and procedures. Um, it's really, it's poor. Very often it's really poor. And to your point before, James, it is really inconsistent. Yeah. It's really inconsistent. Um, and we, uh, yeah, there's, there's not, and, and, yeah, I, I shouldn't be overly critical about that. I mean, you could probably say the same about the legal uh, profession, you know, the quality of advice is, can be really poor poor in some areas and mm. you know, there are lawyers who, who who work outside of their areas of expertise and you know every every profession every industry has its high points and its and its low points yeah um but it it, it does strike me that um safety's pretty stagnant i think at the moment when there's not a lot of innovation there, there's not a lot of courage yeah, even even the new view of safety, by the time it gets to the shop floor, really does it look that much different in most cases? Mm. There's probably one or two pockets of excellence I, that I've – I, look, I've seen them. I know there's some practitioners who are doing really good stuff in really sort of discrete areas. But, uh, it's a struggle, I think. I think I think there is. I mean, it's interesting. We've I had this conversation. We're gonna have to nip this in the bud in a minute, mate. No, sure. It. Um, you've probably got to go to bed, and I've got loads of work to do. Um, but uh, I was having this conversation with a gentleman over here. Um, he he run an event for us actually at, at, at uh, project at PM, and um, he's a particularly big voice within the kind of safety differently kind of world in that he 
is just doing it right um just out there uh, one company done it worked it for that company saw what it looked like for him gone to the next company to just play around with it and he's just doing it right he's not on linkedin he's not on podcasts he's not on yep. anything he's just doing shit right yeah and we ended up having this really interesting conversation after this like event with him uh the week later with the rest of the community and i said look it's, it's really interesting, this this conversation, and that we need to he- hear more from the people that are just doing it. Because at the moment, all we've got is academics bickering at the top, which is what academics are supposed to do. We want them to do it, to challenge each other and do that. But leave them up there to do that. We'll just read their books and interpret it however we want. But we also need practitioners coming out and saying, this is how we've done this. This is where it did work. This is what it didn't work, blah, blah, blah. And then someone else saying, actually, we did this and it did work here and that didn't work there or whatever, right? And they were like, no, we've we've too many people on LinkedIn, too many people with their opinions and stuff like this. And all the people doing good stuff are just doing it. And I'm like, but that's also part of the problem. And that we need to hear from those people just doing it because yeah. that's what we need. Like everyone's going, oh, you know, we need to hear more about Sydney needs to tell us about how to do this. No, Sydney doesn't need to tell us that. The practitioners need to tell us that. I don't want to hear from, no offense to their new book. This is not a targeted criticism because I haven't read it, but I don't really want to hear from Sydney and Todd about how to do safety differently because they're academics, in my opinion. But I want to hear from the Bobs and the Charlies and the Sheilas on the shop floor that are just doing it. Yeah. Does that look and, like? Yeah, and they haven't got employers who have forked out an enormous sum of money to get two really competent academics in to run a trial in their business. Yeah, yeah exactly. Where their old mate, the their old mate who's gone and knocked on the factory owner's door and said, mate, can I have a crack at this? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good point. Like if, if, if you're getting Sydney in or Todd in, you're invested in it, right? That's a shit. Cause that's costing you a shitload of money. But if you've just got like, james from wellingborough to come in like it's probably pretty cheap and i'm gonna have a fucking way harder battle to try and convince these people who have a better way to do things than sydney would at nhs or todd would at oil and gas whatever um that's a really good point actually greg really good point and they're they're the people i want to listen to yes they're busy Yes, but and I don't really want another book, but I do want to hear from those people. Want them putting it on LinkedIn, put it on Facebook, whatever. Just do a little video or something like, tell us we just tried to implement X, and it was shy. It didn't work. Or we tried to implement X, and it worked really well. But then we did the same thing at another company, and turns out it's not copy and paste. It was really hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so they're the kind of conversations we need to hear more of. So I think yeah. going back to the accountability on us as a profession, we need to be more open with talking about, you know, publicly saying here's where it went well, here's where it went wrong as well. And we have a duty to do that, I think, as well. Um, mm. Yeah. Wow. Right, mate. We've been going on a very long time. <laughs> I don't think, you know, all those notes that we made, I don't think we touched, I don't we touched any of them, any no. of them which is, I love that. I'm totally okay with that. Some of the best conversations are not with any notes or anything. And that was really good. So thank you very much for that, Greg. And thank you for your That's time. Right. Um, You've got a lot of editing to do. <laughs> 
now we don't edit any of this. We just put it out. Um, <laughs> I mean, most of my audience is in the UK, but we do have some around the world and, and you're based in, in Australia. But, you know, in case there is anything that anyone would like to talk to you about or would do some work with you, can they, how do they, so on. And obviously give a shout out to your books as well, please, uh, Greg. I just, um, my, my website, waylandlegal.com.au, that's okay. the easiest way to find me. Grand. And all the books are on there and the videos and anything else you want. Um, yeah, if, if, if there is anybody left who wants to talk to me after this conversation, James. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not allowed to bring a pitchfork. <laughs> no. <laughs> Greg, thank you very much. Right. Put your website in the description as well. But thank you for your time, mate. That was really good. Thanks, mate. Take care, James. Okay, peeps. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Greg. He's a great guy. In general, most Aussies are really quite relaxed, easy to chat to. Um, but ultimately, it's got a great kind of insight. And, and I think a lot of that comes from that mixture of having an insight into like the legal profession, but then also that practitioner side of things. So really, I really like that he kind of did that. And I think that's given him a real unique insight. As I said before, if you haven't read the book Paper Safe, then you definitely need to. I suspect you're going to want to after listening to Greg today anyway. Um but we'll link the book in the description below. Um, it'll be an affiliate link, FYI. So we'll get like two pence if you do order it through there. Um, and we actually get kind of two pence for everything that you order. So if you want to do your weekly shop or if fancy buying yourself like another 50-inch TV whilst you're there, and get the book as well, you know, just fill the basket. Fill, fill the basket. Get everything. Do your Christmas shopping now. Be prepared. Do all of your Christmas shopping through that link. Thank you. Don't forget to check out riskfluentlimited.com um, where we can offer you support with technical and transformational side of safety. But ultimately, I hope you've enjoyed this chat. I'll catch you next week. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.